in Ashava. For those in the sanctuary, you may have noticed that our friends on Zoom are back in the room. Hello, everyone. We're sorry for... I really don't even know what the technical difficulty has been, but I'm so glad you're here, and people have been bringing up laptops in front of me, and here you are. So, we are together in this pandemic world, post-pandemic world, who knows what we're living in. There are all sorts of new challenges and new changes, but we roll with it, because we know that the important thing is being together, and we'll always find a way. So, Sanatova. And welcome, you are back up on the wall. In the second century of the Common Era, if you had an issue with the weather, you brought it to your rabbi. Now, this past July, it rained little more than half an inch, but no one made an appointment with me for spiritual intervention. In the second century, a drought met self trust, hunger, possible starvation. And in our modern world, a drought means dry suburban lawns, failed kitchen gardens, and news articles about the worried apple farmers. In the second century, there was a drought, and it was serious enough of a spiritual issue to change the course of Jewish prayer. The Mishnah teaches that when the drought came, Rabbi Eliezer instituted a cycle of 13 fasts, a spiritual prescription for all Jews in the land of Israel. But rain still didn't fall. At the end of that last fast, the congregation began to exit the synagogue, defeated. Rabbi Eliezer thundered, Have you prepared graves for yourself? Admonished, the people broke out into a chorus of wailing, tears falling down their faces onto their clothing, the floor, each other, the people drowning in tears were shocked out of their laments. Lightning cracked outside. The rains arrived. But the rains were short-lived. Evidently, tears could only bring so much water from the heavens. And drought came to the land again. The people once again crammed into their synagogue, waiting with faded breath for the great Rabbi Eliezer to save them once more. Eliezer rode before them. He stood at the ark and recited 24 blessings. And nothing happened. His long and serious prayers were totally unanswered. The Holy Space was silent as that revered leader returned to his seat among the community. From the silence, another figure arose. Rabbi Akiva took his turn before the Holy Ark. With eyes closed and a clear, soft voice, Rabbi Akiva prayed, Avinu Malkeinu, Eilanu Melach Ela'ata. Our Father, our King, we have no king but you. Avinu Malkeinu, Lamancha Rechem Aleinu. Our Father, our King, for your sake, have mercy on us. Immediately, the rains began to fall. History has debated the meaning in this mythology. Was it the simplicity and spontaneity of the prayer? One simple prayer as opposed to 24 intricate ones? Was it Akiva's persistent loyalty to the one God? Was it his appeal for mercy in the face of grave danger? Or perhaps he just got God's name correct. Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king. 
From the Mishnaic story, this phrase evolved to form the bedrock of High Holiday Prayer. We begin with this plea, Avinu Malkinu, hear our voices. Avinu Malkinu, we have sinned before you. And we end with the much-loved folk chorus. Avinu Malkinu. Our Father, our King, answer us with grace, for our deeds are wanting. Save us through acts of justice and love. Today, we do not gather in the sanctuary to ward off threats caused by drought. But Jewish history and tradition has compelled us to gather on the High Holy Days, prepared to wrestle with our own mortality, with the anxiety of living with sentience but not foresight. We have no idea what the future has in store. Save us, pardon us, we will do better. We'll get this right. But where are we directing all of that spiritual energy and existential angst when we pray, Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King? As my teacher, Rabbi Art Green, points out in his recent book, Judaism for the World, the combining of these two titles, the parental with all its loving intimacy, and the royal, filled with awesome pomp, tells us a great deal about the sort of piety Judaism seeks to create. Kingship is a metaphor of distance and authority. In his parable, An Imperial Message, Franz Kafka tells the story of an emperor attempting to send a message to a humble subject from his deathbed. The subject is described as the insignificant shadow cowering in the remotest distance before the imperial sun. It's impossible for Kafka's emperor to reach this humble subject in life. He ends up only being able to reach him through his dreams. But God's king is utterly transcendent, totally inaccessible to his subjects, so inaccessible that they are inaccessible to him. That kind of king can't reach his people even when he tries. Meanwhile, the parent metaphor, metaphor is the exact opposite the ultimate definition of intimacy. This is the Tate, Daddy God of the Hasidic Rebbe. Joy and sorrow bring us closer to our divine parent. We are from God. We are ours. God is our parent. This is the Talmud declaring all of Israel the name Melachim Hen. Even though God is king, we are children of royalty. Avinu, we are the children of the imminent personal God. Malkainu, we are the insignificant subjects of an incomprehensibly transcendent force. Avinu, we yearn for connection, moral purpose, the discovery that life has meaning. Malkainu, we are in awe of the awesome power of life. We seek to explore the many mysteries of this universe. What a wonderfully paradoxical dyad. Avinu, we are loved. Malkinu, we are insignificant. That's an asset. Besides, same coin. Rabbi Akiva's second century spontaneous cry still holds so much relevance. But I don't know about you. That personified God language leaves me uneasy. The language of Avinu Malkinu, God who's father and king, is just so old man in the sky. Fathers can love us or abandon us, support us or judge us. Our fathers inevitably die. And don't get me started on monarchy. If we're going to idealize and make divine a familiar form of power, 
we could choose a more democratic and accessible metaphor. Our Torah, our prayers, are filled with these personified metaphors for God. Contradicting metaphors, myths metaphors, downright strange metaphors. In her essay on the wide array of metaphors on Deuteronomy 32, Rabbi Andrea Weiss of Hebrew Union College directs our attention to such diverse metaphors for God as father, eyelid, eagle, nursing mother, protective rock. Rabbi Weiss believes that we need multiple metaphors in our Bible and in our own lives because no single comparison can encapsulate all there is to say about God and the complexity of the divine-human connection. Literally, this makes sense. Good little thing. But in practice, I fear that all metaphors have a limited shelf life. They only work for us when they feel culturally relevant. If Rabbi Akiva had stood before his people and called out for mercy from the great eyelid in the sky, his prayer might not have made the canon. If he referred to God with only masculine pronouns or insists on describing a tyrannical king, our religion would not be consistent with our moral values. In Sunbi Ozik's brilliant essay, Metaphor and Memory, he teaches that metaphor relies on what has been experienced before. It transforms the strange into the familiar. But what do we do when the once familiar has become strange? What do we do when our God language just makes God all the more distant and anachronistic? And of course, there's the elephant in the room. Many of you heard me say the word God, told yourself that no such thing exists, and that it's just a human story, and then you settled in for a mid-service nap. To you, I say, stick with me, because you aren't wrong. Everything we have and will say about God is a human story. We are capable of moving beyond the limitations of our brains and our language. If God really is something beyond what we are and what we know, then sure, agnosticism is reasonable. God is impossible to prove. No one said discovering the secrets of the universe would be easy. And for others among you, you may be waiting for me to describe God the way you do, to use the right analogy. And that is equally impossible. So I invite you to send me an email or join my theology class and tell me exactly what you think. The Jewish people have been blessed with a tradition that has always been theologically flexible and diverse. When Jacob was renamed Yisrael, the God wrestler, and we became B'nai Yisrael, the children of God's wrestlers, it was a true nomen omen. Our fate was sealed in our names. There is no one solid Jewish definition of the divine, but we all seem to agree with the Deuteronomist claim that whatever God is, God is one. To intensify this conversation, we have to admit that in the 21st century, God has a PR problem. A specific, fundamentalist vision of God is used to cross-culturally is used cross-culturally to justify war, violence, hatred, and most recently, a very specific image of God is being used to control the bodies and lives of every person with a uterus. This is dangerous. This is not our God. Who is this God that we've been praying to for thousands of years? And why do our metaphors, father, king, mountain, eyelid, always fail us? 
part of our issue is that our stories transform God into a being with a personality, a perspective, something to say, someone who makes mistakes. And our personified metaphors fail under scrutiny. Is it the doting father or the deadbeat dad? The benevolent monarch or the tyrannical despot? What if we start with what we know? Matter is neither created nor destroyed. All life is interconnected. We live in a symbiotic relationship with the trees, the bees, the microscopic bacteria in our bodies. When a person gets sick with a novel virus halfway around the world, we all spend three years in a global pandemic. As Baruch Spinoza taught us 400 years ago, the ultimate goal of all living things is to persevere and survive. We survive because we are interconnected. This unified force of life flows through everything and everyone, and to me, this is God. A personal life force animates each of us, and someday we'll return to God. This is Avinu. An eternal life force with awesome transcendent power that permeates space and time that flows beyond imagined volcanoes. And this force is not morally neutral. As we individually persevere, we are filled with an unseen emotional energy that drives us to take care of one another, to understand right from wrong, to recognize personal responsibility. We call this justice and love. And this, this is God. We teach our children and support our friends, Avinu. We fight for systems that are equitable and join together to imagine a better world, Makhenu. And as Bradley Savitarson teaches in his book, God of Becoming and Relationships, this force of life and love is not static, but is always changing. In every moment, all things change. In big ways and small ways, with every breath or decision or blowing of the wind, our world and ourselves are constantly moved, even renewed. This, too, is God. Personal change, Avinu. Global transformation, volcano. God is love. God is life. God is change. Personal, intimate, transcendent, and awesome, Avinu Malkainu. Our understanding of God is just the first step in our spiritual lives. In Judaism, there is no such thing as being spiritual but not religious, or spiritual but not practical. We move immediately from our understanding of the world and God towards a system of communal rituals that help draw our attention to the holiness that surrounds us. Henry James once wrote, Be one of those upon whom nothing is lost. We bless our food, we bless our children, we bless the rainbow, when we lie down and when we rise up. The Talmud teaches that we should say a hundred blessings every day. It is no coincidence that we refer to practicing Judaism as observing the mitzvot. Jewish ritual is a daily mindfulness practice of living purposefully and observantly in every moment. Judaism is not meant to go unnoticed. In her essay, The Riddle of the Ordinary, Cynthia Oza teaches, the Jew has this in common with the artist. He means nothing to be lost on him. 
He brings all his mind and sense to bear on noticing the ordinary. He is equally alert to image and experience. Nothing that passes before him is taken for granted. Everything is exalted. Everything is exalted. In that quotation, Ozick quite purposefully capitalizes the words ordinary, image, and experience. We don't need to visit God's shrine or temple or mountain. God lives in the ordinary, in the experience, in every observation. God is a life around us. But knowing this is not enough. Our rabbinic ancestors gifted us with a detailed playbook to help us navigate life's moments, big and small, all through ritual. And all too often, Reformed Jews think they are non-observant, not religious. That's for other people. But if you ritually named your babies, bless the challah, light the Hanukkah candles, attend the Passover Seder, expect to be buried according to Jewish tradition, you are engaging with powerful observances. And in doing so, you are finding ways to deepen your vision of your life and this amazing world. But like the literal meaning of Avini Malkini, Father King, some metaphors and translations have not weathered the test of time. What was once comforting is now strange. What was once familiar is now alien. We need new words, new spiritual practices, new ways of celebrating and blessing the ordinary and the extraordinary. At Temple Israel, we have an initiative called the Spiritual Practice Lab. We teach classes and hold retreats and prayer services, holiday celebrations, geared towards expanding our prayer lives and allowing us to experimentally explore many pathways towards nurturing our inner lives. We're here. We're already religious. So let's design a Judaism for the 21st century together. Let's discover the words and practices that allow us to observe this world and celebrate our lives. If Akiva were here today, and he were to stand up on the Bema this morning, what would he pray for? An end to violence? A solution to climate change? For peace and love to rule the human heart? And what would he say? What words would he use? Would he say, Avinu Malkini? Would he say, intimate God, transcendent God? What would he mean by these words? I'm no rabbi, Akiva. But here's my offering. God of life, God of love, God of change. Inspire us to open our eyes and our hearts to the wonder and possibility of this world. Help us realize that even when we fail or falter, there is always hope. We are surrounded by community. And as long as we are alive, we have the power to change. May we each realize that we have the opportunity to make this new year a good year. The power is ours. And next year, may we return to this same place, surrounded by friends, ready to connect to you.